Well, some of you know that during most of World War II, Franklin Delano Roosevelt was the president of the United States. He goes by FDR. And FDR was president of the United States, but he died April 12, 1945. And World War II didn't end until May 8th in Europe and then September 2nd, 1945 in the Pacific Theater. So FDR led America as president during World War II, but died before he was able to see the victory fulfilled. And he wrote a speech on April 12th, and he died on April 12th. And you can read his final speech online. But as a dying man, he wanted to say some final things to his country. I won't read the whole speech, but I want to just echo one part. He says, We must live together and work together. We must move forward with strong and active faith. We must live together and work together. We must move forward with strong and active faith. And with those words, a few hours later, he died. And that message that we are to work together, that we are in this together, that we have a common goal, a common enemy, a common purpose, and that we must cultivate relationships and have strong faith, that speech echoes John's theme in 3 John. And I hope to show this morning that it's, that it's this idea that we are in it together that is really behind this small book with a mighty message. For FDR, the identity he was cultivating was a national identity summarized by the word American, but for John, it's an identity of faith summarized by familial terms like brother and children and summarized by one word, love. So John says, you're in it together, love God, love each other, you are workers for the truth. Now, the person who writes this book, John, this is the third of John's letter, is the same John who wrote the Gospel of John and 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And he's called the disciple whom Jesus loved, as I've said before. And he's uh, one of the three disciples, sort of in Jesus' inner circle. There were the 12 disciples, but then there was Peter and James and John. And so Jesus brought John along on important sort of small group things, like seeing his transfiguration. John was part of Jesus' inner circle. The disciple whom Jesus loved, now at the end of his life, urging us to love one another and work together. I wonder if you were in high school, if you had a yearbook, if in your yearbook did you have most likely to most likely to succeed, most likely to maybe make it in Hollywood, most likely to. Maybe some of you had that. Maybe some of you were that. I won't ask you what you were most likely to. But if you would have gone to high school with John, he would not have been the most likely to be an apostle of love. Matter of fact, the Bible tells us that in Jesus' ministry in Mark 3, he gave John and James, the brothers of Zebedee, he gave them a nickname. Anybody know their nickname? Sons of Thunder. John and James weren't known as the loving, gracious type. They were known as the justice, correct you type. And now John, as an old man, has been changed The son of thunder has become an apostle of love. Now you might think, well, that's just because he's grown old and as people grow old, they get softer. Not true. People in their 
late ages become in many ways more of what they've always been, John doesn't just grow old. We can't attribute this transformation to natural maturity. This is a transformation of the Holy Spirit. God changes people. And that's encouraging. There's hope for me and there's hope for you that if you follow Jesus, he will change you. That's how a hothead man becomes a loving man. The love of Christ changed John and the love of Christ can change you. So now John's the apostle at the end of his life preaching gospel unity. But as we'll see, he hasn't lost any of his courage. Being a man of love doesn't mean that you are a weak man. It means that you become a courageous man. And John in this letter, he really illustrates both love and courage. He exemplifies love and strength and character and courage. The third and final letter that John has written isn't written to a church, but to a person. You remember in 2 John, he writes to the lady and her children. That's the church. But notice what it says in verse 1 of John 3, to the elder, the elder to the beloved Gaius. So John identifies himself as the elder, and he writes to beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. So Gaius is an individual a leader in the church, and John writes to the beloved Gaius, and he says, whom I love in truth. Now, this is sort of an affection sandwich, a double portion of affection. He's literally saying, beloved, I love you. Beloved, I love you. No sooner does he call him beloved than he says, I love you. And so from the very beginning, John is expressing his love for the brothers, for the church. That word beloved is important in the Bible. You remember when Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist that a voice boomed out of heaven. Anybody remember what the voice said? This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So that word beloved is very important. It means well loved by God. John is saying, Gaius, God loves you, and I love you. And if you're in Christ, that's how God feels about you. If you're in Christ through faith, God says to you, I love you. You are well loved. You are pleasing to the Father. And so you might come this morning feeling like a failure in your life, but if you are in Christ through faith, his righteousness has been applied to you, his blood covers your sin, and what John says to Gaius echoes to us through the centuries to everyone who believes God says you are loved by the church and by God himself, and God is well pleased. We often miss that God's declaration of Jesus at the moment of baptism symbolizes this act of humility, symbolizes that when we act in obedience, when we act in humility, when we turn from our sins to follow Jesus, we feel the reality of God's love for us in Christ. That's just an encouragement not to be caught up in sin, but to live freely in obedience to Christ. And when you do, you feel the reality. You don't just know it, you experience it, the reality of God's love for us, his profound love for us, his eternal love for us in Christ. 
John says to Gaius in verse 2, look at verse 2, he says, he says, I pray that it may go well with you, that it might, you might be in good health even as it goes well with your soul. That's an interesting thing to say. He says, I hope your body is doing as well as your soul. What an amazing statement. John knows how his soul is doing, and he hopes that his body is doing as well as his soul. This is really important for us to just think about that for a minute. Sometimes your soul is doing great, but your body, not so much. And sometimes your body is doing great. On the outside, you look healthy, but on the inside, you are stained and weak and sick. Two things to point out. You know this, but this is what's called biblical anthropology. This is what the Bible says about you. And it's different from what the world says about you. The world says you're just a body, but God says you have a soul that'll never die. And when your body is laying in a grave or in an urn or wherever, whatever happens to your body when you die, your soul will go to be in the immediate presence of God. One day to be rejoined by a resurrected body fit for eternity. John is reminding us that you have a body and a soul. And number two, John is reminding us, he's reminding us not to think that God's love or favor is measured by physical health or by earthly stuff. It is possible to be in physical health and think, well, God, I must be really accepted by God because I'm in really great shape. John says, no, it's not how it works. Your soul and your body, your soul can be healthy and your body sick, and your body can be healthy and your soul sick. And John says, I hope your soul and your body are healthy, but don't judge the health of your soul by your physical possessions or by your physical health. Well, how does John know that his soul was healthy? I mean, how do you tell if someone's soul is healthy? What kind of, what kind of device scans the soul? Well, there is none. Your physical health is gauged by, you know, blood tests and x-rays and MRIs and stuff like that. But the health of your soul is gauged by your walk, by your life. Look at verses 2 and 3. He says, I, I pray that it goes well with your soul, for I rejoice greatly, verse 3, when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. Here we see that the Christian community is a community of truth, capital T, unchanging, objective, eternal, not my truth, your truth, the truth of God in Christ who is the truth. And so John says, we are a community of truth, of the gospel, sinners who turn to Jesus and trust in him savingly and receive forgiveness through his sacrificial death and glorious resurrection. Not only forgiveness, but eternal life. John's writing the church and he's saying that this church is not defined by earthly realities, but by the eternal truth of Jesus. And notice in verse 12, if you look at verse 12, there's another individual we're introduced to, it's Demetrius. And John says, Gaius, you're doing well. And Demetrius, you're doing well. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. The measure of success for a Christian is not the car you drive. It's not the money in your bank account. 
It's not the square foot of your house. It's how your life reflects the unchanging truth of God's word. If your life aligns with the beautiful word of God, then that is success. That is soul prosperity. That is what God longs for us and what we should long for each other. Now notice that John says that the truth of the gospel isn't just something external. It must be something that we believe. It must become our truth. Young people, it can't just be your parents' truth. It can't just be grandma and grandpa's truth. It can't just be your mom and dad's truth. Maybe a friend brought you. It can't just be their truth. The truth of God and Christ must become what you believe. It must be your truth. Notice that that John says to Gaius in verse 3, For I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth. Your truth. This doesn't mean that truth is subjective, like my truth is my truth and your truth is your truth. No, this means that Gaius believed the truth and then he lived it out. So that's what it means to really believe the truth. It means that your life is set on a course of obedience to Jesus and you stumble and you fall and you confess and you repent and you're forgiven and you get back up and you keep following Jesus for the rest of your life. The truth of the gospel is lived and it transforms and believers are marked out by the truth. Maybe put it this way, John says to Demetrius that you have a good testimony. He's saying you have a reputation. Brothers and sisters, what is your reputation? What is your reputation? If I were to go to the people that you work with, what's your reputation? Is it a reputation as a believer? As a man or a woman who takes seriously their faith, a man or a woman of integrity, a man or a woman whose goal in life more than anything earthly is to follow Jesus with every breath that we take. It is to sit at his feet in devotion and live it out in obedience. Is that your reputation? Is that my reputation? As a church, is that our reputation? So John, John says, we must be marked out by the truth, and then he says in verse eight, look at verse eight, therefore we ought to support people like these that we may be fellow workers for the truth. This is, this is what we aspire to, brothers and sisters. We wanna be workers for the truth. Ephesians 2, eight through 10 says, we're saved by grace through faith, but we're saved not by good works, but we're saved unto good works that God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So when you become a Christian, God doesn't hand us a hammock and say, get to rest. God says, no, now that you've been saved, there's work to be done. Not to earn the love of God, but because God loves us, we are workers for the truth. That's what we aspire to be at Calvary, workers for the truth. So let me explain what that means, why people like Gaius, And Demetrius had a good reputation and how we can be known as a church who are workers for the truth. First, workers for the truth walk in the truth of God's word. Look at verse 3. He says, you are walking in the truth. In verse 4, he says, I rejoice that your children are walking in the truth. So walking in the truth means living according to God's word. You're not trying to keep up with culture. 
You're not trying to match what everybody thinks is cool. You're not being led by fads and trends. You're being led by the word of God. Your parenting is according to the word of God. Your money management is according to the word of God. Your entertainment habits are according to the word of God. The word of God shines a light and you are living in the light. That's what it means to walk in the truth, to be a, someone who's walking in the truth. Notice that word walking is this idea of an ongoing lifestyle of living in the light of God's word, walking in the truth. Look at verse 11. Here's another way to put it. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Imitate good. All of us are imitating something. We all want to think we're individuals, but really we're imitating something. I remember when I was in you know, like high school, I said, I'm going to show up to school first day of my sophomore year, and I'm going to be a real individual. I'm going to dress different. I'm going to act different. And then you show up to school, and lo and behold, you're dressed just like everybody else who's trying to be an individual. We're all following something. And so John says, are you following evil, or are you following good? Are you imitating evil, or are you imitating good? The word to imitate means to follow. John says, don't follow the world, follow the word. Aim your life at Jesus and follow Jesus. What did Jesus say to his disciples? Follow me. Follow me. How do we follow Jesus? By walking in the truth of his word, by the power of his spirit, by responding in obedience to the promptings of the Spirit and by the Word of God. Workers for the truth walk in the truth. They don't just project faith, they live it out. Being a a worker for the truth means that you don't have a private faith, you have a public faith. Your faith isn't secret, it's lived out, it's on display. You know, when you get married, you get a wedding ring, I discipled a guy who was a jewelry maker and he made me this honking wedding ring and I really love it. It's just big wedding ring, but a wedding ring projects to everyone that you belong to someone. You're not on the market, so to speak. Walking in the truth is a daily public display of obedience that we belong to Jesus and he belongs to us. And like in marriage, we are in a covenant relationship with Jesus And we're not with him physically, but one day we will be, and we are preparing ourselves for that day. So that kind of public faith is an immense joy. Don't miss out on what John says in verses 3 and 4. Verse 3, I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth. And then he goes on in verse 4, he says, I have no greater joy than to hear that your children are walking in the truth. We walk in the truth, and when we do, there is joy. There is joy in walking in the truth. Listen, if you hear me say nothing else this morning, would you just allow this to be seared into your brain? There is joy when you walk in the truth. There is great joy when you are walking in the truth. Maybe you're here this morning, and you don't have great joy. And I would ask you, are you walking in the truth? Or is there a part of your life that's separated from God's word? Are you sort of saving some part of your life for your own private rebellion? As long as you do that, you will not be joyful. God will not let you be joyful because God more than anything wants you to run to Christ to experience forgiveness and to walk in the truth. And when you do, there is great joy. 
John uses the metaphor children for Christians. He says, I have no greater joy to hear that my children are walking in the truth. And this, these are not his literal children, but there's a principle here. The greatest thing we should want for each other is that each other are walking in the truth. The greatest thing we can want for our children or our grandchildren is that they would be walking in the truth. Too many parents care for the, the body but not the soul when only spiritual things can deliver true success. A godly parent cares for the body and the soul. More than anything, we want our children to know Jesus and to live for him. In the previous book, 2 John verse 4, he says, some of your children are walking in the truth. And that's how it is. Not everybody is walking in the truth. I would be ignorant to think that everybody is walking in the truth. And so as a pastor who loves you, one of the exhortations or applications of this book is that I would urge you to walk in the truth and experience the joy of following Jesus, and just ask you this morning, where are you this morning? Are you walking in the truth? If not, return to walking in the truth. Return to what you've been taught, enough wandering, enough foolishness. God's been gracious, but don't presume upon his grace. So run to the Father and receive forgiveness. Workers for the truth, walk in the truth. And second, they are united in the truth. Workers for the truth are united in the truth. If you look at verse 5, John talks about the churches and he refers to brothers who are strangers. He says, beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers though they are. Isn't that a fascinating phrase? Brothers who are strangers. If I can put it this way, I don't know you, but I love you. Now, how can you say that to someone? I don't know you but I love you. You can say that because you are brothers and sisters. You are children of God the Father through faith in Jesus Christ and you recognize their faith because they are following Jesus as you are following Jesus. And so one of the main messages of this book is that we should welcome each other in Jesus and as we follow Jesus, we should delight in hearing that other people are following Jesus. So if we hear of a church down the road that's really blowing up and they're preaching the gospel, that doesn't make us jealous. That makes us happy. We want people to know about Jesus and follow Jesus. And if our kid says, you know, I didn't get that job, but I'm following Jesus, we're happy for them. We don't judge each other by worldly standards. We want for each other what John wants for us, which is that we walk in the church. If we're walking in the church, we'll be walking in the, if we're walking in the truth, we'll be walking in the same direction. Think about that for a moment. Our culture, people are pointed in all kinds of different directions. They believe different things. They act different ways, different values, different beliefs. They're committed to different ways of thinking and living. And so our culture is a culture of chaos and disorder and disunity. But in the church... God is a God of order and we are to be a church of order and the only way we are in order is if we are all pointed in the same direction, following the same word, committed to the same Savior. We're not committed to our agendas. We're not committed to our preferences. We're not devoted to our way. We're committed to Christ and his kingdom 
and his glory and his way. As we saw last week in Jude, there is this unity of faith is constantly under attack. And in John 3, it's personified in verse 9 by a, gal, by a guy called Diotrephes. And John calls him out because he's a wolf in sheep's clothing. He's dangerous. And just like a doctor, you know, your doctor doesn't say, you know, there are generally, there are generally things that cause cancer. Just generally. No, he says, don't smoke because it'll call cancer. Your doctor, if he loves you, warns you against specific things. And John says, watch out for diatrophies. Why? Because it says in verse 9, He didn't care about the unity of truth. He spoke wicked nonsense. He didn't care about the unity of faith. He put himself first. He didn't submit to the authority of Christ and his apostles. He rejected authority. So if that's true of you, then you're not a worker of the truth. If you insist on being first, you're not a worker of the truth. If you reject authority and and need to have your own way, then you're not a worker of the truth. If you, if you don't care about the unity of truth, if you speak wicked nonsense against your brothers, then you are not a worker of the truth. And remember, the working of the truth brings joy and unity, and those who reject the truth bring shame and embarrassment and division. So that's the recipe for division, not joy. Put yourself first. Speak nonsense and lies and reject biblical authority. Play favorites. Politics in the church. John says that will not bring joy and unity. It will not reflect the glory of Christ. It will bring shame and embarrassment. And by allowing Diotrephes to experience shame and embarrassment, he's warning the rest of us, don't be ashamed. Don't be embarrassed to be found walking in selfishness. Walk in obedience to Christ. Be a worker for the truth. Third, workers for the truth support the advance of the gospel. Support the advance of the gospel. This is what John wants. John wants Gaius, Gaius, I'm sorry, to support people. Look at verse eight. Support people like these. Support people who preach the gospel, who advance the gospel. And so our church is a church where we want to support various efforts to share the gospel in, in care facilities and in, and in children's ministries and in recovery ministries. We want people to hear the gospel. Some of you know that we're a Southern Baptist church and as a Southern Baptist church, we give to something called the cooperative program. And the cooperative program is churches that pool their money together so that our little church and our little money contributes to something great that has a global impact. As you walk out today, you're going to see a little display of pictures. It's been there the past couple weeks. Did you know that through the cooperative program, our church sponsors 3,511 missionaries around the world? 3,511 missionaries. In 2022, through the cooperative program, our church, along with other churches, planted 745 new churches in North America. And we have six training seminaries, educating over 22,000 future pastors, youth ministers, counselors, and, and missionaries around the world. Now, why do we do that? We do that because we believe as workers for the truth that our, our mission is not just about what happens in these walls. Remember, Jesus says, Jerusalem, Judea, and where? 
the ends of the earth. And so as a church, when you donate, you have to understand that part of our money goes to fund things all over the world because on the day when Jesus gathers the nations, there will be people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation exalting him as King of kings and Lord of lords. Workers for the truth. So brothers and sisters, that's success. Success is faithfulness. Success is you aiming your life in the direction of Jesus. And no matter how much you struggle or stumble, you never give up. You continue to follow Jesus day after day after day, walking in the truth, supporting others who want to shine the light of God's word and reach the lost. You want to make your life count? Be a worker for the truth. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come before you and we ask that you would empower our efforts to promote the gospel here in this building, here in our fellowship, in our families, in our lives, at our work, among our friend groups, on the sports field, in our affinity hobby groups, Lord. Lord, we pray that you would empower our missionaries to share the gospel and the churches that have been planted to reach people we could never reach with the gospel of Jesus Christ. But Lord, may it never be that we profess something that we don't live. So God, may we leave here today challenged to live out our faith in obedience to Jesus, to follow your word. God, I pray that if there's any part of our life that is tripped up in sin, Lord, if there's, any, if there's any ensnaring sin, I pray, God, that you would set us free. Grant us repentance and faith to walk in freedom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.